Welcome to A Conversation with History. I'm Harry Chrysler of the Institute of International Studies. Our guest today is Robert A. Papp, who is Professor of Political Science at the University of Chicago, specializing in international security affairs. His publications include Bombing to Win, Air Power and Coercion in War, and most recently, Dying to Win, The Strategic Logic of Suicide Terrorism. Robert, welcome to Berkeley. It's great to be here, Harry. Thanks for having me. Where were you born and raised? Erie, Pennsylvania. Uh Uh-huh. And looking back, how do you think your parents shaped your thinking about the world? I guess I came from a working-class background. Uh, My father was a house painter. My mother was a waitress. uh, And I think that probably uh, the biggest thing they did was uh, uh, give me a steady diet that, uh, you know, if you you work hard, uh, good things might happen. And, and what got you interested in political science and then in international politics? Well, it wasn't a design. It wasn't a conscious strategy. Um, when I, I was an undergraduate at the University of Pittsburgh, uh, just before that I had spent a summer with a German family, and I thought I wanted to become an interpreter, uh, possibly become something uh, of a foreign service diplomat, but I was thinking more of an interpreter. So uh, my very first term, I had no idea what political science was, but there was a course offered in international relations, and so I took it, and uh, it turned out I loved it. I was uh, in a course taught... Uh, uh, that, that focused on Morgenthau and great power politics, things that I had been generally interested in but never really deeply engaged. And um, then I found myself taking more and more courses along those lines and in political science and in other areas of political science as well. And then where did you do your graduate work? University of Chicago. And what, who, who were your mentors there? Who, whose uh, thinking really influenced you, either living or dead? Uh, well, actually, the, the, a, a group of young bucks at the University of Chicago. I arrived in 1982, the same time uh, John Mearsheimer, who's now quite a famous academic, uh, well, this was his very first job, and he wasn't famous at the time. Uh, there were also several other uh, young bucks uh, who, are, who are now a little bit longer in the tooth, <laughs> in the teeth, um, uh, Charles Lipson, Duncan Snydell. And uh, one person who's a little older, was Morton Kaplan. He was part of the old guard who uh, was not quite in retirement but had um, kind of moved into his golden years. And this group, although they actually often didn't get along with each other, Mm -hmm. (laughs) they were a terrific group to have for uh, on a dissertation committee and they were just simply uh, invaluable as I went through graduate school. And, and what did you do your dissertation on? Uh, air power, coercive air power. Uh, when I went to graduate school I didn't have any idea that I'd become an academic. I thought I was going to go into the Foreign Service, kind of continuing on uh, uh, the project I had as an undergraduate. Uh, and I thought it would be helpful to get a PhD to study some of the problems in more depth uh, that I might encounter in the Foreign Service. Um, And as I uh, began life uh, in graduate school, I thought it would be in more political theory, study the meaning of a democratic free institution, Mm -hmm. which if I was in the Foreign Service, I might help spread. Uh, Well, as time went on, I was so impressed by the young bucks who were there that I decided to work in a different area. And I got very interested in questions having to do with how a technological uh, superpower like the United States could lose the Vietnam War. And that led 
led me to questions about air power. What are the conditions under which air power can work and can't work since we used air power so much, but it proved so futile in the Vietnam War? And that led to a dissertation, not on the Vietnam War, but on air power more broadly, which I then followed up um, during the 1990s. Uh-huh. And, and what, what were your conclusions? Does, does air power work or only in certain circumstances? Well, um, strategic air power, the use of air power um, to attack the capital city or to attack populations directly rarely succeeds, actually, no matter how we modulate those threats. And what I did is I looked at all the air campaigns in history since World War One through the first Gulf War, and I found that it was striking how ineffective the use of independent strategic air power was compared to theater-based air power, where air power and ground power are used together a bit like a hammer and an anvil mm -hmm. to crush not so much an enemy leadership or attack enemy populations, but to attack the enemy army. And that what was happening during the 20th century is that air power was becoming more and more effective, but at a very specific thing, mm -hmm. attacking an enemy conventional army. And that's what air power has also continued to become uh, effective in uh, over the last 15 years. This means that we can use air power for some missions quite well, like conquering Iraq in 2003, but others remain extremely uh, ineffective or very, very poorly effective, such as trying to um, topple a regime short of actually conquering its army. Mm -hmm. uh, let's talk a little about doing research as a social scientist in international relations. You, you, you just talked about the, the Air Power book, and in a minute we'll talk about uh, your most recent project. What, uh, give us an idea of what it takes to do, be a social scientist doing work in IR. What, what, what are the skills you think you need, and, and, and what is the, the character required to, to keep at it? Well, I think that there's probably two things that are important. One is um, independence of mind. And actually, increasingly, as the political science profession has become professionalized, that's a commodity that's more and more difficult to come by because um, graduate school today is actually much different than when it was just 20 years ago when I went to school, where uh, 20 years ago we might bring in 60 graduate students, um, and uh, of that class of 60, perhaps 10 would actually graduate. Well, today we might bring in 17, and virtually all 17 are likely to get a PhD that has pluses and minuses. Mm -hmm. One of the minuses is that um, graduate students today often are very, very focused on um, just inching the literature a bit, just making a mm -hmm. contribution to be sure, but inching it a bit. And um, I think that though to make an impact, obviously, the more you're willing to challenge the conventional wisdom, the more you're willing to spend years learning a certain area, uh, gaining technical expertise in a certain area you didn't have, um, the more likely you are to have an impact. And so the second uh, issue is not just independence of mind, but being willing to actually go into a new area that you had very little mm -hmm. experience in and learn a lot about it. In my first work on air power, when I chose that subject, I knew nothing about airplanes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I didn't play war games as a child. Uh, uh, I'm not coming at this from a military history mm -hmm. background. Well, of course, after 15 years of mm -hmm. uh, spending time researching and writing, and I spent three years teaching for the 
U.S. Air Force, uh, you learn quite a bit. And you have to, there's a, there's a certain willingness to go into an area where you're going to actually learn quite a bit. And those two attributes, I think, are quite important. Mm -hmm. What, what, what uh, is it you're looking for in, in an intellectual community to further your ideas along. I know you you spent some time, as you as you just said, uh, at a at a military school uh, for mid level uh, uh, officers training to to hopefully become generals and so on. Uh, so did that in that first book? Did that provide a, a give and take that that really helped you move your thinking along? Uh, yes, it it surely did. And what I see is important in the community is a certain degree of intellectual Darwinism, uh, where ideas and arguments are put forward and then challenged independent of rank, independent of authority. Um, when I went to work for the US military, one of the big advantages I had is here I am, a civilian. <laughs> mm -hmm. I have no authority, no standing whatsoever in the community as a whole. And I'm trying to produce books, uh, a book with a set of arguments um, that's directly uh, affecting the uses of air power we might do in the future. Well, this group in the U.S. Air Force, they wanted to, they, they liked nothing better than to mm -hmm. fight with me tooth and nail over every single page. That was incredibly valuable. The University of Chicago is another very, uh, another environment where intellectual Darwinism um, is strong. Some people think actually too strong, but for me, I like it, uh, I like that environment because I believe that when you are in an environment where you're challenged, um, um, if you are a serious uh, person, then you don't walk away from that and put your head in the ground. Uh, you walk away thinking, you know, perhaps I need a stronger argument or a stronger case. And with suicide terrorism, um, one of the, the best experiences I ever had was in 2002, as I was just producing uh, the first set of papers from this uh, argument, they weren't published yet, um, I gave a seminar at the University of Chicago. It was covered by the alumni magazine. Uh, they came because of the topic, suicide terrorism. But if anybody goes to read the story in the Chicago Alumni Magazine, they'll see that here is this tenured professor at the University of Chicago putting forward a set of arguments. And then as the person who wrote the article said, and then Professor Pape was grilled for two <laughs> hours. And I was grilled by full professors, chaired professors, graduate students, first-year graduate students, second-year graduate students. And um, I believe that this, uh, it was invaluably helpful to me as I went forward. Before we talk about the suicide terrorism book, help us understand where you fit into this IR community. Would you classify yourself as a realist? Well, um, yes and no. I mean, uh, I, I take a problem-oriented approach to international affairs and to uh, uh, political science in general. Um, I don't think that I'm really interested in pushing a certain theory or a certain paradigm. I think that what the work I do, what characterizes it, I like to pick a problem, a problem that has um, a policy uh, a focus, but it's a problem that policymakers probably are not going to have the time or the tools to solve because there's a fair amount of social science involved. By that I mean trying to look at patterns of social behavior over space and time that directly affect um, uh, the problem. And in the case of air power, what, air power is not about putting bombs on targets. Well, it is partly, but 
but the real debate about whether air power can and can't win wars is about what are the conditions under which air power alone can cause a government to surrender crucial pieces of territory. Well, that's partly about how to put a bomb on a target, but it's more than anything else about the social science of the general patterns under which states um, do and don't make concessions to military pressure. In the case of uh, suicide terrorism, this is first and foremost, a social science problem because we're trying to understand the conditions under which individuals would actually give their lives in order deliberately to kill others. Well, that, uh, of course, um, has some, their intelligence, uh, our our intelligence experts in Washington can contribute to that by eavesdropping on terrorist Mm -hmm. groups. But first and foremost, this is a social science problem. And unless social scientists take this problem on, we're likely to not end up with broader understanding of Uh, the conditions that do and don't produce suicide terrorism. And so if we don't do the social science, we can end up making the problem worse. Mm -hmm. So let's show your book again. It's called Dying to Win, The Strategic Logic of uh, Suicide Terrorism. Uh, Tell us about its origins. How how did you come to this problem? Was it something you were thinking about even before 9-11? No, not at all. Um, Before 9-11, I was working on a completely different book. (laughs) And in fact, if you look at my hard drive, you'll see that book was saved at 8.02 a.m. on (laughs) 9-11 when I got the first phone call. And uh, what happened is I uh, didn't immediately after 9-11 get interested in suicide terrorism. Um, I was uh, invited on 9-11. I was quite honored to uh, be asked to go on a number of important uh, media shows, uh, along with some important people. On that day, these were in, in Chicago, for instance, we have an important show called Chicago Tonight. Well, on this show were the two senators from Illinois, mm-hmm. uh, representatives, uh, uh, an academic, and another ac- myself and another academic. Well, um, I was brought on not to talk about suicide terrorism. I was brought on because um, people wanted to ask technical questions about levels of casualties. You might remember that on 9-11 itself, and for a few days, we didn't know much about some of the technical things that had happened. Well, given my expertise on air power, Mm. and because this was somewhat similar to an air attack, um, I was able to come on. And so very early on, I was able to explain, well, the way that we estimate civilian casualties in an air attack is we just look at the floor at which a cruise missile might hit a building, and we assume that's where the fire is going to be, and that everybody above that point will probably be killed, and everybody below that point has a good chance of escaping. Well, that um, argument is is now the conventional understood ex- explanation mm-hmm. for what happened on 9-11 itself in the two towers, um, but at 9-11 and the next few days, that was something that um, uh, I, was, uh, I, was, I was pleased to be part of, and I was also asked questions about suicide terrorism, simply because I was on the air. Mm-hmm. Well, I immediately realized that we didn't have much of a factual basis for making judgments about the causes of suicide terrorism. Um, To the extent I had any initial idea, like most people, I thought the the, uh, suicide terrorism was a product of Islamic fundamentalism. I kind of found myself reaching for a Quran. Um, But more than anything else, I found myself, as these interviews went on over weeks, um, collecting data in a notebook of of the actual attacks that had occurred over time because I couldn't find anyone who had actually collected the data on suicide terrorist attacks um, uh, around the world. And absent that, my social science instincts told me 
Absent that, we wouldn't really be able to make a judgment about what is the cause and not the cause of suicide terrorism. And, and so uh, we, we have an event. We have uh, al-Qaeda identified uh, uh, shortly thereafter as the, the key source. So, but but the, the question of, well, who else has done this? Right. What other groups have done this was a rather murky area. And uh, what did you go about doing to, to uh, sort of uh, get behind that fog to say, okay, here are these different groups. So what, what, what do we have to collect? What sort of data do we have to collect? Well, it may sound fairly simple, and it is. We have to collect the data on the actual suicide attacks that have occurred around the world over a period of time. And we want to know not only where they have occurred with some degree of certainty, we want to know where they haven't occurred with a fair degree of certainty. So this is a little bit like studying cancer or lung cancer. We not only want to know who gets cancer, we want to know who doesn't get mm -hmm. cancer. And we want to be tracking this closely enough and with enough confidence um, in our research that we can be highly confident that we have the right information. Well, um, that kind of a project, uh, that, that instinct led me to collect the first complete database of every suicide terrorist attack around the world from 1980 through early 2004. Um, and then since then, I've updated this database for the crucial case of Iraq just through actually uh, December of 2005. That, da that, that database contains 462 suicide terrorists who've actually killed themselves mm -hmm. in order to kill other innocents. What's most, one of the most striking things about those 462, over half are secular. Mm -hmm. The world leader in suicide terrorism is the Tamil Tigers in Sri Lanka. They're a Marxist group, a secular group, a Hindu group. Mm -hmm. The Tamil Tigers in Sri Lanka have done more suicide terrorist attacks than Hamas or Islamic Jihad. Further, about 30% of all Muslim suicide attacks are carried out by secular suicide terrorist mm -hmm. groups such as the PKK in Turkey. That's a Kurdish terrorist group in Turkey. Well, what this means is that over half of all suicide terrorist attacks all around the world since 1980, mm -hmm. pretty much since they've begun in the modern period, um, are not associated with Islamic fundamentalism. If that's the case, then Islamic fundamentalism is mm -hmm. no, not as, light, as tightly associated with suicide terrorism as most people think. Now, there's an important point before we go on which should be made. It, it wasn't just the case that there was no evidence for the answer to this question about, well, what is the logic behind suicide? But everybody thought we knew the answer. They, uh, many people thought they knew the answer, but you should also, I, I think it's also fair to say many people realize there's more to the puzzle than meets the eye. Mm -hmm. Because, of course, um, there has been, religion has been around for centuries. And, of course, there are um, many religious people who don't commit suicide, uh, even, for, uh, even when stretched in these conditions. So what um, this, the project, as I began to unpack it, um, it 
it was clear to me that many people assumed Islamic mm-hmm. fundamentalism was the central cause, but it was also clear to me, as I looked especially at the research underneath that, that many people realized that might be a hollow presumption. Mm-hmm. They were presuming it, given the absence of data that mm-hmm. showed nothing else. So in the case, that that's as I began to collect the data and as I put the data set together, that's when it also jumped out at me what was driving suicide terrorism. Mm-hmm. Because you see, what over 95% of all suicide terrorist attacks around the world since 1980 have in common is not religion, but a specific strategic goal to compel a modern democracy to withdraw combat forces. Don't mean advisors mm-hmm. with sidearms. I mean tanks, fighter mm-hmm. aircraft, or APCs from territory the terrorists view as their homeland or prize greatly. From Lebanon to Chechnya to Sri Lanka to Kashmir to the West Bank, every suicide terrorist campaign since 1980 has had as its central objective mm-hmm. to compel a democratic state to withdraw combat forces from territory that the terrorists prize. Now, now this is very important, and, and we're going let's let's uh, take apart all that you've just said. So, so really, what you're saying here is that nationalism or a national liberation movement is a driving force in all of these cases. Suicide terrorism is an extreme form of a national liberation strategy. Mm-hmm. Nationalism, that is nationalist commitment to the territory that's at issue, is the core driving force. And of course, some nationalists are also religious. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it doesn't mean that nationalism is always fundamentally opposed to religion. But it's terribly important to see that what's the key concept underneath suicide terrorism, the key driving factor, is a deep anger over the presence of foreign combat forces on territory that the terrorists prize greatly. And absent that core condition, Mm -hmm. we rarely see suicide terrorism. Mm -hmm. Now, in in, uh, a characteristic, an important characteristic that you identify of these groups that you're looking at is uh, their weakness vis-a-vis the occupying point. So, so this is uh, an alternative that develops in a context where there isn't much that can be done militarily in a, in a normal uh, uh, set of interactions. Uh, well said. The, the key purpose of suicide terrorism is not to die, mm-hmm. but it's to use the person's body as a weapon to kill, to try to put pressure on the opposing society so that that society will put pressure on its government to change its military Mm -hmm. policies. Well, what's interesting about this tactic is that we see it as a weapon of last resort. We don't see suicide terrorism often as the first choice of a a terrorist group. Instead, what we see it is actually the choice uh, after many other things have failed. In fact, suicide terrorist groups are often large guerrilla organizations with thousands and thousands of members um, who have tried ordinary guerrilla tactics or even ordinary terrorism before resorting 
responding to suicide terrorism. Yeah, that is, they're evolving from a very large group. The PKK in Turkey, for instance, has uh, uh, 10,000 cadres who are uh, armed fighters. The, Shri, the Tamil Tigers in Sri Lanka, uh, five to 10,000 armed cadres. And what's occurring here is that this is, uh, these groups are evolving to suicide terrorism when other means have not gained the concessions, the independence of the territory. Um, and they're not, they really don't look like what we might think, which is a cult. Mm-hmm. 30 people sitting in a room uh, at the feet of a, of a leader. Uh, um, before I did this research, I was expecting to see suicide terrorist groups looking a bit like uh, the Branch Davidians. That's David Koresh out mm-hmm. in Waco, where um, David Koresh had, had 40-some followers who stayed at his feet for hours every single day, mm-hmm. and he essentially brainwashed them. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not what suicide terrorist organizations look like. They're very large, and in fact, the suicide terrorists themselves are typically walk-in volunteers and not long-time members of the group. Mm-hmm. And, and it's very important to, to uh, make the point here that this strategy seems to work because they are dealing with democracies. That is the adversary. And so this, this extreme action uh, has an impact. Uh, yes, every one of the suicide terrorist campaigns that's kicked off since 1980 has been targeted against a democracy. And it's important to recognize that, well, rightly or wrongly, democracies are viewed as soft, especially vulnerable to coercive punishment. And suicide terrorism is a strategy that's trying to exploit that vulnerability. It does it really in two ways. First, because suicide terrorist attacks, uh, in a tactical sense, kill more people on average than a non-suicide attack because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, someone who actually uses his Mark II eyeball to steer a bomb in um, can simply uh, have, the time, have the bomb go off when there are 10, 12, 20 people uh, nearby. Um, but secondarily, it produces a greater sense of fear in the target society because target societies instinctively know that if there was one, two, or a group of suicide attackers willing to give their lives to kill, uh, to kill them, there could be more, possibly many more. And that strategy, that produces coercive leverage, which suicide terrorist leaders over the last 20 years have learned pays dividends. Uh, The very first set of suicide terrorist attacks began in the modern period, began in Lebanon in the 1980s. Ronald, uh, uh, one of the, just the very fourth attack was the famous suicide truck bombing of the Marine barracks in Beirut in October 1983, which was killed 241 of our Marines. Well, the purpose of that attack was to cause American troops to leave uh, Lebanon, and they did. Ronald Reagan, no pacifist, Mm -hmm. responded to that attack uh, by just a few months later, picking up and withdrawing all of our troops from Lebanon and actually virtually abandoning the country economically and diplomatically. In fact, Reagan in his memoirs has a whole chapter devoted to this where, to his credit, he is honest and just lays out exactly why he did what he did. Mm-hmm. And he says, and I'm, par- I'm quoting directly from his memoirs, he could not stay there and run the risk of another suicide attack against the Marines. Well, Terrorist leaders observed that key event. Uh, 
And in fact, that event has uh, motivated them and encouraged them to do other suicide attacks, not only Hezbollah, uh, that is the suicide uh, organization in Lebanon, but this key event, this single event, shows up in the mobilization rhetoric of Hamas, by Osama bin Laden and al-Qaeda, and even by the Tamil Tiger leadership, uh, they point out that this event demonstrates that suicide attack can cause a democracy to withdraw combat forces from territory that that democracy really doesn't prize as much as the terrorists. What, what do you think is the reason that democracies are so vulnerable? Uh, is it that just the shock of what has happened, the, the fear uh, that, that this could happen again and it can't be controlled and it can't be stopped? What, what, what is the dynamic there? I think that democracies, um, when put under this coercive pressure, first of all, they don't always buckle. So I don't think that democracies are vulnerable to this pressure without limit. But I think democracies, when put under coercive pressure, reevaluate their interests mm -hmm. that are at stake. And mm -hmm. Ronald Reagan, to give you his full logic, said, that the, the reason he wouldn't run the risk of another suicide attack against the Marines in Beirut is we had so little at stake. There was nothing at stake mm -hmm. for the security of the American homeland. There was nothing at stake for the American economy. And in fact, as he said, there was even nothing at stake in the Cold War. There was, this was not a key battleground in the ideological battle with the Soviet Union. So the fact is, as he looked at this case, the extra cost caused him to reevaluate his interest and his strategy in this particular scenario, and he just decided the, the benefits were not worth the costs. Um, and I think that that's an important point to make, because it's not that suicide terrorism is so powerful it can cause democracies to abandon all interests. Mm -hmm. It can cause democracies to abandon moderate interests mm. or minor interests, but probably not core interests of importance to the strategic vitality of the state as a whole. Mm -hmm. So, so you, you really asked three very important questions, and we've discussed one. You, you've explained the strategic logic of terrorism. What, what, and then you go on to talk about the social logic of uh, suicide terrorism. Uh, and it's important to note that although you're not saying that religion is the reason and the primary reason, you're not removing it from the table in terms of the role that it does play. And, and that comes in here as you answer the question of the social logic. What is the social logic here? Well, you see, this is, it's important to address not only the strategic logic, but the social and individual logics, because there are multiple causes to suicide terrorism. One cause that is virtually a necessary condition is the foreign occupation is foreign occupation or the threat of foreign occupation that is where the democracies put combat troops on territory the terrorist prize but not every foreign occupation by a democracy has escalated to suicide terrorism so to find out which did and which didn't i went further and actually about two-thirds of the book are devoted to answering that particular question. And I found the answers in the social logic of suicide terrorism in particular. The other factors that matter, once you have the presence of foreign combat forces on the, t on the, on the critical territory, is whether there's a religious difference between the predominant religion mm -hmm. of the occupying force and the local community. 
it's a religious difference that makes that matters more than any one religion and why is that the case well it's not because the uh, when there's a religious difference that causes uh, religious Muslims to do suicide mm-hmm. terrorist attack it's because when there's a religious difference that gives the terrorist leader an opportunity to paint the foreign occupier as motivated by religious goals and the foreign and the terrorist leader then can use that religious difference to terrify essentially or to encourage both secular and mm-hmm. religious members of the occupied community um, to generate uh, uh, urge to, to see a sense of urgency in responding to the occupation so that in fact the foreign combat forces aren't simply the first stage of a fundamental transformation of the local community toward the values and especially the religious values of the um, uh, foreign combat troops in the case of al-qaeda we see this directly in osama's use of the crusader image uh, in many of his speeches when um, Osama gives uh, motivating speeches that are often 40 and 50 pages long, mm-hmm. and they often follow a fairly standard um, organ, uh, pattern. He often, uh, in 96, for instance, one of the most famous was entitled The American Occupation of the Arabian Peninsula. Well, it began in 96 with a detailed uh, discussion of American combat operations on the Arabian Peninsula. And you remember, we're engaged in the containment of Iraq during that time, so we had a lot to, 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 to go through. Then the next section was all about why we were doing it. And he presented it as the American design was a crusader design. We had, in his view a crusader logic where we were following a Christian agenda to weaken Islam, perhaps convert Muslims, and possibly help Israel expand so that both Muslim I'm sorry, so that both Christians and Jews could extend control over Jerusalem. Well, interestingly in this speech he went further and he said given the crusader design of the American forces, they would soon conquer Iraq break it into three pieces, Mm -hmm. and then do the same to the rest of the Arabian Peninsula. Mm -hmm. Well, in 2003, (laughs) unfortunately, this looks all too prescient for bin Laden because, uh, uh, because we did do exactly that. And his argument, the core argument, is yes, religion is important, and yes, he does want Islam to respond, but where religion begins is in the goals of the Americans and why they have combat forces on the Arabian Peninsula. And that's what he's using to create a sense of urgency among that, uh, his community to respond. And, and so on, on the one hand, American involvement in uh, the 90s uh, offered uh, a, a real change in what we were doing in that area. First there was the Iraq War, then after that we, we had troops stationed in Saudi Arabia and yeah. so on. So, so that he is trying on his side to clarify what uh, he sees as our agenda, uh, whether or not we stumbled into this or it was part of a, of, of a strategic logic on our part. Uh, that's exactly right. And um, even expert audiences, Harry, don't know that before 1990, or m- many don't know, uh, we did not station combat forces Mm -hmm. on the Arabian Peninsula, even going back to World War II. 
Yes, we had advisors with sidearms, a few hundred with, with sidearms, but no tanks, mm -hmm. fighter aircraft. And bin Laden is using the presence of the foreign combat forces on the Arabian Peninsula and the fact that there's a religious difference between us and them in order to mobilize uh, not just um, uh, the terrorists, but the general publics um, in that area uh, to oppose this particular occupation. Why does he do that? Well, it's because suicide terrorists themselves depend very much on broad popular support in the local community from where the terrorists come from. This is kind of an uncomfortable fact. Many of us would like to believe that uh, suicide terrorist groups, uh, whether it's among the Palestinians or bin Laden, they just have tiny fractions of support. And in fact, just most recently, as we do this interview, there were, there were elections uh, on the West Bank where Hamas uh, seemed to mystify our State Department mm -hmm. <laughs> by winning. Well, it really doesn't come as much of a surprise that Hamas could have this broad support uh, once you realize that, in general, suicide terrorist groups have very broad mm -hmm. support from their local societies and they it's crucial because suicide terrorists are walk-in volunteers who overwhelmingly have little experience with the terrorist organization which means they have to meet up with recruiters the recruiters must be somewhat visible in that local community or else these walk-ins couldn't mm -hmm. find them well that means that the local population must know where most of them are, mm -hmm. and if they wanted to, they could turn them in. And so without the support of the local population, it would actually be quite easy to get information on the recruiters and the organization um, of most suicide terrorist groups. And it's crucial for bin Laden then, as a leader of this organization, to build a broad argument that explains not just to three people why they should go do this mm -hmm. attack, but to the societies at large that, uh, uh, that are at issue so that um, the, he has their general support. So, so to sum up, uh, religion is not primary, but it's not unimportant because it enables the, the terrorist organization or the nationalist organization to uh, uh, win support to legitimate the action, to create uh, an enemy that uh, appears uh, 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 to want to destroy the integrity of, of, of the group uh, that is behind the terrorism. And then it also uh, legitimates martyrdom. So, exactly. so, so religion somehow is a glue that brings a lot of things together, but it's not the primary cause. That's right. When we look over time at all the cases where democracies have put combat forces on other territories since 1980, about 58, what we find is there's a certain key commonality um, about the small subset that have produced suicide terrorism, and it's a religious difference. And also, I should say, a prior rebellion is also important because it's often the case, as I said before, that suicide terrorists um, evolve um, to suicide terrorism uh, rather than start that way. And those key conditions are what you see when you actually look at uh, that, um, that broad set of occupations. And absent those three conditions, we rarely see suicide terrorism. Mm -hmm. So, so one would, if one looks at the, the foot soldiers, the suicide terrorists of Al-Qaeda, 
don't we don't find religion? What what do we find in their their origins uh, 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 that confirm or disconfirm your theory? Al Qaeda is a prime example of the strategic logic of suicide terrorism. My book is the first to collect the complete set of every Al Qaeda suicide attacker from 1995 to early 2004. That is, the 71 individuals who actually killed themselves to carry out attacks for Osama. Of those 71, we have the names and nationalities of 67. Over two-thirds come directly from Sunni Muslim countries where the United States has stationed combat forces since 1990. One-third do not. One-third are more transnational in nature. But even among the one-third that are transnational, we see uh, that the motive of causing the United States to leave the the United States and the West in general to leave the Arabian Peninsula is a powerful factor. The London bombers uh, are a good case in this regard because obviously they weren't they were they were they were uh, from from Britain. And let me make four points about the London bombers. First, the Al Qaeda group that claimed responsibility for the London attacks just two hours after they occurred, and with specific operational details not yet in the press, said the London attacks were to punish Britain for British military operations in Iraq. Second, Hussein Osman. He's the would-be July 21st bomber that we have in Rome. Well, he said in his interrogation, and I'm quoting, he said, this was not about religion, this was about Iraq. We watched films of Western military operations in Iraq. Third, Mohammed Khan. Mohammed Khan is the uh, ringleader of the July 7th attacks, uh, the guy from Leeds. Well, Al-Qaeda released his martyr video in September. In that video, Khan says in an eerily English, with an English accent that the London attacks were to punish Britain for British military operations on Muslim lands. And finally, the British government itself. In 2004, the British Home Office conducted a four-volume survey of the attitudes of the 1.6 million Muslims in Britain. They found that between 8 and 13% of British Muslims wanted more suicide attacks against the United States and the West. Mm -hmm. And they further found the number one reason for that, Iraq. Mm -hmm. Iraq. So I'm not trying to say Al-Qaeda has no transnational support, (laughs) but it's crucial to see that if Osama were no longer able to recruit suicide terrorists based on the anger generated by American and Western combat forces on the Arabian Peninsula, the remaining transnational network would pose a far smaller threat and may well simply collapse. Mm-hmm. Now, your, your, your theory and the proof of your theory, which you, you've given us, and, and I should uh, show your book again, it's called <laughs> Dying to Win, Thanks. The Strategic Logic of Suicide Terrorism, uh, and, and I recommend it uh, for the, both for the argument and the clarity of the presentation. It, I must say it's a, it's a book where all the social science data is presented in such a clear way that, that one wants to read it and not skip the pages. I read a lot of books, so I, I was very uh, uh, conscious of that. But, but in the end, you, what you're saying has profound implications uh, for our policy. And 
uh, you say at, at some point, uh, first we must defeat the current pool of terrorists while working on the conditions that create future terrorists. And, and uh, these two goals can work against each other. Talk about that. Well, in, it's terribly important, of course, to directly attack the terrorist organizations um, because obviously we want to impede their ability to attack us in the short term. But as we do that, it's also possible that we can over... Uh, react. It's also possible that we can do many things that we're not even uh, paying close attention to to um, actually deepen the anger that at bottom is what's allowing the suicide terrorists, uh, causing the walk-in volunteers in the mm -hmm. first place. And if we're not careful about that, then we can end up easily making the problem worse. And I'm afraid since 9-11, we have made the problem worse. Since 9-11, Al-Qaeda has carried out over 17 suicide and other terrorist attacks, killing nearly 700 people. That's more attacks and more victims than all the years before 9-11 combined. Yes, it's true they have not hit the American homeland, but we now know why. We have a key Al-Qaeda strategy document. In September 2003, Al-Qaeda published a 42-page document on radical websites for how to deal with the United States after we went into Iraq. And that document says, it was later found by Norwegian intelligence, by the way, and it's still sitting on the Norwegian intelligence mm -hmm. website. That document says that Al-Qaeda should not seek to attack the American homeland in the short term but instead should focus on hitting America's allies. And then that document, uh, allies who sent combat forces with us to Iraq or Afghanistan. And then that document went on to assess at the length of 42 pages whether they should hit Spain, Britain, or Poland. They concluded, this is in the fall of 03, that, we, that they should hit Spain in Madrid just before the March 2004 mm -hmm. elections because that would put the most pressure uh, on the Spanish to get out of Iraq and indirectly put pressure on the British to start mm -hmm. getting out of Iraq. Well, we actually got that document before mm -hmm. the March 2004 uh, uh, Madrid bombing. Uh, the Norwegians gave it to us, and we chose to put it aside. But that document is crucial because it makes clear what al-Qaeda has been doing. And in fact, of those 17 attacks that I mentioned, mm -hmm. All 17, when you look at the victims of the attack, not the countries where the attacks occurred, but the victims of the attack, they are overwhelmingly European civilians from countries that have combat forces side by side with us in Afghanistan and Iraq. Well, unfortunately, the threat is growing. And a key reason why the threat is growing is because we're waging the war on terrorism on a faulty premise the premise that suicide terrorism is mainly a product of Islamic fundamentalism. Well, if that premise were true, then it would make perfect sense to conquer Muslim countries so we could transform them mm -hmm. <laughs> and wring the Islamic mm -hmm. fundamentalism out of them. But if that premise is wrong, then in fact, by conquering countries, especially on the Arabian Peninsula, we can increase the number of suicide terrorists coming at us. And since 9-11, We've gone from having 12,000 combat forces on the Arabian Peninsula, 
5,000 in Saudi Arabia, 7,000 in Iraq, to over 140,000 combat mm -hmm. forces in Iraq and the rest of the uh, Arabian Peninsula. And as we've done that, suicide terrorism, both by al-Qaeda and coming right from Iraq itself, has gone up side by side. So, of course, it's important that we uh, uh, target or capture or kill al-Qaeda leaders. Of course it's important that we go after uh, suicide terrorists who are uh, planning operations to kill us, but we must also pay close attention to the cause, the root causes of suicide terrorism, or we may continue to simply make the problem worse. Uh and what would be your strategy? You, you are a person who, whose work shows a, an understanding of, of, of strategic logic, what works, what doesn't work. Uh, we are addicted to oil, President Bush has told us recently. So, so we have interests in the Persian Gulf. How do we realize our strategic uh, goals there and interests, while at the same time uh, taking account of what you've taught us? Well, we can't simply cut and run, because the fact is we do have a core vital interest in access to Persian Gulf oil. However, the last uh, six months, I've been offering three other points to the Bush administration. Uh, I've been on Capitol Hill four times, I've spoken to the Office of Secretary of uh, Defense, uh, and um, uh, that comes to three basic points. First, Al-Qaeda must be our top priority. Yes, Iran and North Korea are important, but it's Al-Qaeda that's actively planning to kill Americans, and we've lost sight of that over the last three years. Second, in Iraq, over the next year, it's important that we begin to draw down combat forces, even if the insurgency does not subside, and over that year, we should also completely transfer responsibility for the security of Iraq to the Iraqi government. It should be the government of Iraq that builds the Iraqi army, not the American government. Third, over the longer term, say over the next three years, by the end of Bush's presidency, we should shift to a new military strategy for securing our access to Persian Gulf oil, offshore balancing. Offshore balancing is actually the strategy we pursued before 1990, and it worked splendidly. Before 1990, the United States didn't station a single combat soldier on the Arabian Peninsula, but mani managed to successfully secure our interests in oil nonetheless. How? Well, we, instead of stationing combat forces on the peninsula, we maintained an alliance with Iraq and Saudi Arabia, which we can do again. And even opponents of the war in Iraq should admit that that's a good thing that's come out of this war. Second, we stationed numerous aircraft carriers off the coast of the Arabian Peninsula. And today, air power is much more effective than it was 30 years ago. And finally, we maintained an infrastructure of bases bases without troops, but bases so that we could rapidly deploy hundreds of thousands of ground troops to the region in a crisis. Well, that strategy of offshore balancing works splendidly against Saddam Hussein to reverse his aggression against Kuwait in 1990, and offshore balancing is again 
our best military strategy to secure our interests in oil, to prevent the rise of a new generation of suicide terrorists coming at us. And it's a strategy that we can maintain not just for a year or two, not just hang on by our fingernails like we're doing now, but we can maintain this for decades, which is what we're going to need, because it will take decades to produce true alternative sources of energy so that we can diminish the importance of the Persian Gulf. You've shown us in this interview how uh, a social scientist focused on IRA can can take a problem, grapple with it, uh, and think about it. And and, uh, you've done uh, an outstanding job in this book. The question becomes, how do you then move this insight uh, into the political process. I know you've been speaking a lot. You mentioned you've appeared before the Congress, the Office of the Secretary of Defense. Uh, give us a little insight in uh, how the system comes to uh, discover the error of its ways in, in light of a piece of scholarship. What, what are the obstacles? What are the, the, the successes in moving the system? Well, the main obstacle for an independent piece of scholarship is that it's independent of any uh, patron in Washington. Mm-hmm. So I have no uh, deep patron. I have no, you know, f- uh, no one in Dick Cheney's office is supporting this. Uh, although it might be useful to tell you that some uh, portions of the Defense Department have funded research in this book. So mm-hmm. it's not in- fully independent of Washington. But the fact is, um, there are no patrons that are giving me access to give talks. Instead, uh, what's happened is the findings of the research are so striking that many people in the media have picked up on those, and many people in Washington, uh, either leaders, political leaders themselves, administration officials themselves, or their staffs, are actually deeply interested. They recognize there are uh, areas of suicide terrorism they don't know about, and so when they see these uh, stories in the media about the book, they might actually go out and get a copy of the book or Mm -hmm. invite me to give a talk. Well, that process uh, has led to, um, I've been on Capitol Hill four times uh, over the last four months. I've spoken to probably 40 of our 535 uh, representatives and senators, about half from each party, half were Democrats, half were Republicans. Um, The fact is that's extremely unusual. In all the years before, I've been doing research uh, uh, since probably 1985 in national security affairs. Um, in, in the whole 20 years before, I had never been on Capitol Hill to give a talk. Mm-hmm. Um, I've briefed individual congressmen one-on-one, but never a group. And these briefings go on for an hour and 20 minutes. They often allow me to give a presentation. And then we typically sit there. And much like that University of Chicago group, I get grilled. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's terribly important for those important people, men and women, to be able to look someone in the eye ask them direct questions after they've actually seen the data. Uh, One of the other things that's very important to to know is that there are no cameras in the room here. Uh, These are over breakfasts and over lunches. And what I found is very helpful in this regard is that uh, without the cameras in the room, none of the, I have never heard in all this conversation, anybody begin or insert in the middle, uh, or even at the end of a comment, uh, an attack on the Bush administration, or a defense of the Bush administration. <laughs> it's all been about, as, as, one, as one person, uh, one prominent member put it, 
we want to know who's trying to kill us and why. Mm -hmm. And this new data uh, really provides some new insights there, and it's uh, the case that um, there's actually uh, quite a few people in Washington who um, have uh, a lot uh, a lot more interested in the facts than we sometimes see on television. If, if you uh, could speak to a general audience out there, I'm curious, uh, well, I have actually a two-part question. What, what is the, the most important finding of your book? And then what, what should people do about that? I mean, how do you, uh, they're not making policy. Mm-hmm. Uh, how, how does one affect the consciousness of a broader audience, and then what can they do about it to make it meaningful, the the learning experience? Well, um, I've actually spoken to a number of of public audiences over the last six months as well, and I would say that the main message is that when we look at the facts, the actual data, uh, this is a lot like lung cancer. It wasn't until we did those studies in the 1950s and 60s that we saw that there are, yes, multiple causes of lung cancer, but one cause stood head and shoulders above the others, which is smoking. Well, now we have a similar type of study where we can really see that, yes, there are multiple causes of suicide terrorism, but one cause is standing head and shoulders above the others, and it's the presence of foreign combat forces on the territory that the terrorists prize. Well, what's terribly important then is um, for, for publics, and especially um, uh, to um, tell other people about this point, because many people um, still don't know about these new, the new information, and as that word spreads, it has um, a very important effect in Washington. I've been very, uh, I, I'm optimistic. Uh, I think, yes, I'm critical of the Bush administration. I've said a lot of things critical about them in the book, uh, but the fact is, um, one of the things that's very striking is that the Bush administration is now planning for the first time to remove two combat battalions from Iraq and not replace them. Well, if that process goes on, <laughs> then in fact this will be, for the first time this year, an actual drawdown of American combat forces in Iraq. Uh, Bush doesn't have to have the rhetoric of, oh gosh, I was wrong, I'm, I'm going to change. He can say whatever he wants. The issue is, what does he do underneath it? And that's actually what's important not only for us, but also the suicide terrorists. Because the ter- that's the same thing that they're going to be tracking. And I think that that means that, yes, our enemies have been dying to kill us for the mm-hmm. last decade, but with the right strategy, it's America that's poised to win. Well, uh, Robert, uh, again, let me show our audience your book, Dying to Win, The Strategic Logic of Suicide Terrorism. And I want to thank you very much for writing the book and and thank you for taking the time uh, to be with us today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Harry. And also reading the book so carefully. Thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you very much for joining us for this conversation with history. (laughs) 